Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. Today, we're going to depart a little bit from inflation for a moment. Uh, Because as interest rates go up, uh, and they've been going up, and they'll they will go up and down, but but if inflation is as I believe it is uh, going to be here for a while, then that means that interest rates are are going to go up more than they go down from here, and and that means that the negative rates, negative interest rates that we have seen around the world now for several years. Uh, even not just on sovereign debt, but sometimes even on corporate debt, um, they're going to go away, and and at some point they'll all be gone, and probably forever, or at least for the balance of of my investing career. I just want to make sure before this happens that we we take a moment to look back and think about just how crazy this whole episode of negative interest rates was. But before we delve into the craziness of negative interest rates, I I do want to take a minute and talk about uh, inflation in the context of the Ukraine-Russia conflict that we have going on right now. Um, I don't don't have a lot of... um, useful things to say about sort of the microeconomic effects, you know, what happens uh, if Russia absorbs Ukraine, um, you know, will they cut off uh, various pipelines and and uh, will uh, less of Ukrainian grain get to the West and blah, blah. You know, there's all kinds of different effects on the micro level that will happen and that are very dependent on exactly how that conflict plays out. Um, so I don't, I don't really have an opinion about exactly how that all gets, gets resolved. Uh, however, there is a, a sense in which this particular outcome advances a game that's been going on for a while or a theme that's been going on for a while now, for at least a couple of years. And that is that um, we're living in an increasingly risky world or a world that is risky for supply chains. Uh, we are living in a world that is becoming a little bit less global. There's less global in global trade. And what that's doing is it's it's reversing a very long-term trend that goes back, well, it goes back you know, decades if you, if you think about it, uh, depending on how you think about it. But you know, the globalization dividend uh, really started to accelerate in the 1990s, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall in the late 1980s. Um, and and in fact, you know, we can see that the number of bilateral and, and multilateral trade arrangements um, really accelerated starting about 1993. And, and so if you sort of, if you actually chart that as a number of, of trade agreements, um, by year, you'll see there's this big spike in about 1993, a big jump, a step change in the level, and that and that for for a very long time after that, there were many, many, many uh, trade arrangements that were being negotiated, and so markets were opening up, domestic production was being offshored, uh, we were extending supply chains to bring in lower cost raw 
materials and intermediate goods to the United States to produce uh, cheaper finished goods than we could otherwise do. Um, we were also extending, we were also uh, uh, using cheap overseas labor uh, for services, um, for IT, for customer support, and things like that. And so, you know, we don't think about importing services very often. You know, we think this is all a goods story when we think about globalization, but it's really not. It, it affects services as well. Well, th that globalization dividend was already sort of petering out. You know, once once the world is as global as it's going to get, you sort of, you know, stop losing this, this opportunity to get an, an added gain by uh, moving your production to China or from, from China to, uh, to Vietnam or, or what have you. And, and, um, at some point you sort of run out of how much you can squeeze the lemon. Um, but in the last five or six years, we've started to see actually a, almost a, a reversal in some cases. And, and some of this goes back to to Donald Trump and uh, and the populism that he's um, associated with, not just Donald Trump, but other countries as well, there has been much more, uh, there has been a rise of some, uh, of a local populism that, that pushes back against some of this, of this globalization. COVID also accelerated this trend a little bit um, by reminding everybody that long supply chains um, are are inherently risky and that um, your, if your lead times can, can caterpillar from, you know, 14 weeks to 10 weeks and up to 18 weeks, that that adds a lot of risk and, you, and, and requires you to hold more inventory as a result. And so, and so we've sort of been reminded that these long supply chains, even though, you, you know, you're, you're acquiring something cheaper overseas, whether it's production or, or intermediate goods, um, they're not without risk. And so you've started to see more uh, manufacturing make the decision that shorter supply chains, maybe not necessarily U.S. production, but but um, uh, North American production. You know, Mexico, uh, for example. Um, you know, where where labor is cheaper, but it's also really really close. And um, and so we've seen more of that into these shortenings of supply chains. In the context of the Ukraine-Russia um, conflict, you know, that is another reminder that things can go wrong with supply chains. And there are a lot of supply chains that are, will be affected by that conflict. And, and this sort of will accelerate um, uh, or at least continue this, this trend. And so I, I think that the effect on inflation of this crisis – there, while there are lots of micro effects that people will point out when they show up in the CPI, the the more subtle, more durable, more long lasting effect is that in general we have gone we are going from a world which a decade ago um, was was much more um, at, at peace in terms of, a, of of trade arrangements and has become much more uh, tenuous. In that sense, and that is that tends to make um, goods, especially uh, uh, goods inflation, go up a little bit more. So that's sort of a a a, a bit of a, a departure from what I wanted to talk about today. But being the inflation guy, I felt I kind of had to talk about that. Today's main topic 
is about the negative nominal rates that we have seen around the world, um, you know, off and on since the since the global financial crisis, really, um, but but especially in the last several years. So for many years, many 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 years, uh, financial theorists and and strategists um, assumed that interest rates couldn't go negative. It just made no logical sense for an interest rate to be negative. If you could hold cash that yields zero, why would you ever buy a bond that yields minus one? It's absurd. You can hold cash and guarantee that you have a same, the same amount of cash, or you can buy a bond that guarantees that you'll have less money. That doesn't make any sense. And so the assumption was that, that, that from, a, from a theory standpoint, it made absolutely no sense. You can't have negative interest rates. In in 2008, we actually saw a couple of times in during the global financial crisis when T-bill, T-bill yields in particular went somewhat negative, slightly negative. And, and upon review, that kind of made some sense because that was a banking crisis. And while you and I, who have maybe, you know, $1,000 in the bank, could take that money out and hold cash. Uh, if you are Microsoft and you've got $25 billion, you can't hold $25 billion in cash. Um, and so in that kind of context, then it makes sense to get a very – and if you think that there's a chance that the that keeping it in cash in the bank – runs the risk that the bank fails and you lose 100%, then even if you give give the chance of a bank failure a fairly low probability, it still makes sense to accept a slightly negative nominal rate to own T-bills that are guaranteed to pay you back. Um, and so from a theory standpoint, you could say, okay, we could see that in times of crisis, it might make sense for yields to be slightly negative for very, very high-quality debt. Um, okay. But now, we live in a world where there are tr- there's trillions of dollars of negative-yielding debt. And why does that, you know, why is that the case um, is, is a l- much longer story. Um, but it's really a lot weirder than you might think. Um, and, and, and part of the reason it's weird is that we don't have this big risk of bank failure at the moment. And so keeping money in a zero, uh, zero paying interest, uh, zero interest paying deposit at the bank doesn't seem like a bad alternative. Um, why would, wouldn't you do that instead of owning a bond? Um, but if you are in a world where you have negative interest rates, you get very, very many strange outcomes. So the way I like to think about this is, let, let's, let's first start and start with thinking about what it means to have an interest rate, what an interest rate means. What, the reason that interest rates in general are positive is that we would prefer to have something today than in the future. You know, would you rather have a bar of chocolate today or one year from today? Most of us, if we like chocolate, would prefer to have the bar of chocolate today rather than at a point in the future. Um, you'd rather have $100 today rather than $100 in the future. And we understand this on such a visceral level 
that, you know, in the Popeye cartoon, there's a character named Wimpy who says something which is sort of innocuous, except that we've always, we, we always inherently, we, we naturally understood the absurdity of what Wimpy would say when he would say, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. And that just seemed pathetic. Poor, poor Wimpy. He's always saying, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. It's, it's sort of amusing. But why is that amusing? Well, it's amusing because we'd rather have the money today compared to the money on Tuesday. If Wimpy wants his burger today but doesn't have money for it, then he's going to have to borrow the money and pay that money back on Tuesday. But it's going to cost him something to do that, right? Because we have a time preference for money. It will cost some, Wimpy something extra because he needs to incentivize us to part with money today so that he can get his burger now. And so when he says that, when he says, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, we kind of understand that's sort of silly. Unless, of course, you have negative interest rates. Now, not only can Wimpy get his burger today, it'll cost him less if he borrows the money because interest rates are negative. So what he could say, I'll gladly pay you less than the burger costs and not until Tuesday for the burger today. And we are enthusiastically saying, yeah, that sounds like a great deal. Sure, Wimpy, no problem at all. That's an implication of negative interest rates. Um, if, 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 you just, if you had a yield, curve that was, a yield curve that was flat at a negative interest rate, it imp would imply that the further out in the future you go, the more valuable it is. A dollar next week is worth more than a dollar today. A dollar a month from now is worth more than that. Uh, a chocolate bar next year is preferable to a chocolate bar today. And, and Wimpy is actually, you know, it's, it's actually, he's kind of backward. He's being forced to have a hamburger today when a hamburger on Tuesday would be so much better than the hamburger today anyway. Now, it gets even weirder if the yield curve is initially negative but then slopes upward and becomes positive because that says that time preferences, that discount rates, are negative at first. So something gets preferable the further away it gets. But then at some point, it flips around to being normal so that things get worse after a certain point. So there's some optimal point in the future when everything is golden and everything is perfect and you want to have everything at that point point and nothing beyond it because those things are worse and nothing before it because those things are worse. That, that one day in the future, value is maximized and it's less valuable to get paid money after that date or before that date. Now, this is all really, really bizarre, but it has real world implications. Now, we've mostly, we've mostly resolved or ignored most of these things, but when, when interest rates first kind of persistently started going negative, it played havoc with derivatives books. Because you run into all kinds of weird options problems if you have negative interest rates and all kinds of weird swaps outcomes and things like that. And you get, and you get, <laughs> you get all kinds of other strange financial implications as well. So for example, um, in general, it's the case that stocks that don't pay dividends, or for a, 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 a given stock, a given company, that doesn't pay a dividend, uh, that equity should trade at a lower multiple than, um, than, a, 
than the, the same company if it had a stock that that paid dividends. Um, because if you're if you value that company only on a terminal cash flow date, if the assumption is you get all of your value back and you're not getting any of it in dividends, so you get it all back at a future date, that future date is worth less than money that's earlier. And so if you have dividends that are getting paid before that that terminal date, then uh, then those are worth more than getting that money away in the future. And so you should get multiples that, and again, for the same for the same company, if you had these these two different equity securities, the one that is paying you dividends um, is is worth more than the one that isn't paying you dividends. And we kind of know that. But if you have negative interest rates, then it's better for a company to not pay dividends because those dividends are worth more if the company just holds on to them and pays them to you in the future. So, which means that if a company cuts its dividend, it should trade at higher prices after it cuts the dividend, um, which is sort of strange. You know, they give you less money back and that makes you really excited because you don't have to take this, this, you know, money back that you'll have to invest at negative interest rates. Um, I can think of lots of other examples where negative interest rates really screw things up really badly. So if normally, if your college, if your kid is entering college, um, a lot of times the college will offer you an incentive to pay four years of tuition at, at the current rate. Um, you know, you know, if you pay up front, um, but if interest rates are negative, then the college should demand a premium um, if you want to pay up front. Car companies um, should should insist that you take out a loan and refuse to or 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 charge you more for the car if you insist on paying cash. That seems sort of crazy to everything we know. You would think that a car company that a would say, we would love for you to pay cash, but in a negative interest rate world, the car company will say, we would much rather lend you money at zero um, than take your cash today. It's not use, It's not very valuable to us today. We'll have to invest it at negative interest rates. In this crazy world, it is good to be in debt and it's bad to have an nest egg. Now, it's funny, when I originally started thinking about this back when interest rates first went negative, that seemed like a crazy statement, and now it's kind of it's kind of normal, right? I mean, we we ex- people tell you all the time, take out as much debt as you can at these low interest rates, and if you have the option to have negative interest rates, you absolutely should borrow as much as you can. And having a nest egg, we all know now, um, leaves you with some rough alternatives, right? Where do you put that nest egg? You know, stocks and bonds, super, super expensive. Cash is yielding, you know, is deeply negative in a, in a real return sense. Um, and so, you know, again, people sort of are, you, you, can, you can understand why, why having a nest egg is, is, doesn't necessarily convey the same sense of safety and, and, and wondrousness that it once did. Uh, in Wimpy's world, in a world where time preferences are reversed, um, neighbors would uh, want you to borrow a cup of sugar and w- don't want you to return it. Um, burglars would put off burglaries. 
baseball teams would sign the worst baseball players to the longest deals. Um, insurance companies would pay out life insurance before you die rather than wait. Um, all of these things are crazy and insane, and they all derive from the idea of negative interest rates, which means negative time preference for money. It's crazy. And we're going to look back on this as interest rates now start to rise and the stock of negative yielding debt around the world has come well off its highs and, and eventually it's all going to go away. And and just like today, we have bond certificates that that, that have little attached coupons to them from the old days. And that's sort of a, 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 a uh, cute reminiscence of the way things used to be. One day we're going to look back on this era of negative yielding in, of negative yielding corporate debt and negative yielding sovereign debt. And we're going to say, what in the world were these people thinking about? It is absolutely cr crazy. And we should totally appreciate that this is a, we're, you know, the world we live in is, is, is wonderful and amazing and uh, in so many ways. But it's also really, really absurd in some ways. And that's one way that we're going to look back and say, what were they thinking? Negative interest rates are far weirder than, than, you, than you think when you start thinking about the implication for, uh, for time preferences. Anyway... That, de that, that is a bit different from my usual uh, podcast. Um, you know, I am the inflation guy. But before I was an inflation guy, um, I was an interest rate strategist and a Fed watcher and all those things. And, and uh, I built derivatives curves and, um, and, you know, did fixed income relative value arbitrage and, and things like that. And so, you know, <laughs> um, every once in a while, I have to go back to my roots and um, – and sort of look at, at things that are going on in the world and, and, and appreciate that in the inflation, in inflation space, you can have negative interest rates because you're talking about real interest rates. And that totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. But it doesn't make any sense in the nominal interest rate world. So, so that's all for today's podcast. Uh, you can contact me. Uh, I am Inflation Guy at EnduringInvestments.com. You can send me email there. You can follow uh, my blog at uh, MikeAshton.wordpress.com. On Twitter, I'm at Inflation underscore Guy. We have uh, an Inflation Guy app, mobile app out there that you can get in your, your Google Play Store or your Apple Store. Um, if you want to know about uh, what, what we do uh, in inflation space, you can visit EnduringInvestments.com. Uh, and most importantly, uh, you know, tell people they should be listening to the podcast. Uh, we're trying to, this is only the 21st episode, and, and we're trying to grow this podcast. So if you have some suggestions, please send them. But please refer other people to the podcast as well. I really appreciate it. Defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>